Yeah, that's uh, my two rides. Yeah, that's my my mountain bike where I'm using for in the World Cups at the World Championship, and uh, that's my car. Gets me safe to the to the competition. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say. Yo-ho! Welcome to episode 86 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking about rides. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And a very quick review, again, to get us underway this week. Favorite podcast, five stars by Alds00 from the US. I look forward to this podcast more than any other. Great content and engaging topics that make me keep wanting more. Great job, mate. Thank you very much for taking the time out to drop that review into iTunes. You know it means the world to me. And a reminder to you that if you do like the show, please take some time out to go to iTunes or Stitcher and drop a review because five stars make me... Thank you very much. Now, the two bits of glorious information I tracked down from the interwebs this week. The first one is a follow-on from last week, and we're talking again about mouth rinsing. This time, though, I'm talking about mouth rinsing and ingesting a bitter solution improves sprint cycling performance. The purpose of this study was to investigate whether mouth rinsing and ingesting a bitter-tasting solution of quinine improves maximal sprint cycling performance. If you know anything about quinine you know that people use it to try and ward off cramps and if you go back to my cramp podcast you'll realize that i don't believe that it does anything for you in that regard so it's interesting that they're using it to see what it does for sprint cycling performance it doesn't really go into the details of why it would do anything but if we look at the results they seem to be positive the study itself got 14 competitive male cyclists and they performed 30 second maximal cycling sprints immediately after rinsing their mouth for 10 seconds and then ingesting a quinine solution or plain water or one with a sweet solution or no solution at all, which they were the control. The cycling output was recorded during the sprint. Heart rate, perceived exertion, blood lactate and blood glucose were measured pre-exercise, immediately post-exercise and seven minutes past the exercise. So the results... It seems that the quinine significantly improved the mean maximum power output by 2.4 to 3.9% compared to the other three conditions. Pretty amazing if you ask me. And this study shows for the first time that mouth rinsing and ingesting a bitter tasting solution immediately before a maximal sprint exercise can improve performance. Bold claims, yes, they're backed up with science, but is it really worthwhile? I don't know really how practical this is, but it could, if investigated in the future, it could definitely lead down the road where we're all sucking down some quinine before we go out for any sprint efforts. And the second fascinating thing I found this week was an interview with Steel Van Hoff. He is one of the nice guys of the bunch. Getting in early, I find, with pros is the best way to get an understanding of the life of a pro, the world of the pro, and how they operate behind the scenes. And it's really funny because after some time, you just start getting those standard non-committal answers that most pros give during interviews. But it seems Von Hoff is going the way of the normal pro and he's going to start clamming up when it comes to interviews into the future. 
So get in there and check it out. Have a read of it and see how he responds to these questions. And one thing I will say, though, there is one writer in the bunch, an Australian, that I feel that gives good interviews every single time, and that is Matty Lloyd. He's had a terrible run the last couple of years. He's back racing in the U.S. scene with Jelly Belly, and there is an interview on Cycling News that you should check out as well because he talks about some great stuff in there, including these couple of tidbits, which is how the U.S. scene is eager to get involved with new ways at looking at clothing and bike technology and everything else to do with cycling and racing. He really finds that it's a fresh feeling and it's a very different vibe to Europe where you get the historical aspects which sometimes crowds the progress going forward. I think this is very fascinating because the U.S., Canada and Australia are probably very similar in this regard and he notes that in the interview that this kind of starts to confirm to me my feelings that I had that you can imagine Sky and Garmin going into the European scene with their quirky modern day techniques and just being laughed at initially but now maybe the sport is starting to change it is very difficult to change such a historical sport but Training will change over time, and we will see what happens from here. Okay, the nuts and bolts this week. What are we talking about? We're talking everything plyometrics. Do you even know what plyometrics are? If you have been under a rock, maybe I will forgive you. Other than that, if you didn't know before 2009, then you definitely would have known after that because there was a massive bubble that blew up because of Armstrong's comeback and the pictures that surfaced of him pumping himself silly in his gym to get to his new super fit regime for his comeback. And just because he's gone away doesn't mean that Plyometrics has been replaced by something else. I still think it has a solid place in cycling. And in fact, it has been around other sports since the early 90s when the Russian scientist Yuri Verkovsky created the original form of plyometrics, which is nothing like what you have today, but it was the start of the whole movement for plyometrics. But before we get too bogged down in the history, let's understand what problem it's actually trying to solve. Because when I think about plyometrics, I think about that fast movement, that snap, or at least your anaerobic ability under two minutes. And that really is more like a quick response to an attack with a violent change of speed or any other short-term power output that's required. So attacking, sprinting, starting mountain bike races and cross races, short climbs, getting out of corners, bridging gaps, anything that needs that violent attack is what we're trying to train when we do use plyometrics. And as endurance athletes, it really doesn't seem obvious that we need this. But as a racer, you understand how valuable this could be. The ability to crank it up quickly rather than just winding it up slowly, it really is a valuable tool to have in your back pocket. But why not just stick to strength training? Because... There is underwhelming support just for strength training. Some research has been done that shows strength training improves leg strength by 30% and short-term cycling performance by 11%. And by short-term, I mean sprinting for 30 seconds or less. And this was done in well-trained athletes, so they're the type of people that we identify with. But, and it's a big, big butt and I cannot lie. 
that's awful, I know. But not to derail where I'm going with this, traditional strength training doesn't share many, if any, similar movements with cycling. So it's missing the specificity element that is so important in any type of training, and this is where plyometric steps in. And plyometric exercises are explosive movements to develop muscle power. The ability to convert strength into speed in a very short time allows for athletic movements beyond what raw strength will allow. So how about the effectiveness of this type of training? Because I'll tell you one thing, it is massively understudied. There is one recent study that debates the effectiveness of explosive strength training for endurance athletes and running and cycling were looked at. It was done in 2013 and it's called Optimizing Strength Training for Running and Cycling Endurance Performance, a review, which reports on the effect of combining endurance training with heavy or explosive strength training on endurance performance in endurance-trained runners and cyclists. Interestingly, in this study, it found that running economy is improved by performing the combined endurance training with either heavy or explosive strength training. However, heavy strength training is recommended for improving cycling economy. So while you can combine endurance training with either explosive or heavy strength training to improve running performance, there is only compelling evidence, according to this study, for the additive effect on cycling when it comes to heavy strength training only. So that doesn't really help us, does it? Because there's no sign there that plyometrics will help cyclists improve or get better. There is another study that gives us part of the answer, but the workouts are combined with 30-second sprint training, so it's really hard to get a definitive take on plyo exercises themselves. And the study is called Combining Explosive and High-Resistance Training Improves Performance in Competitive Cyclists. And the study combines two types of training on performance in the competitive phase of a season and took 18 road cyclists and replaced part of their usual training with 12 30-minute sessions consisting of three sets of explosive single-leg jumps, which is 20 per leg, and then alternating with three sets of high-resistance cycling sprints, five times 30 seconds with 30-second recoveries between reps. So not too ball-busting, but you know, still pretty hard stuff. The performance measures obtained over the two to three days on the cycle ergometer before and after the intervention were mean power, four-kilometer time trial, peak power in an incremental test, lactate profile power, and oxygen cost determined from two fixed sub-maximal workouts. And the results... The control group showed little mean change in performance. The power output sampled in the training sprints of the experimental group indicated a plateau in the training effect after 8 to 12 sessions. Relative to the control group, the mean changes in the experimental group were significant. One kilometer power increased by 8.7% on average. Four kilometer power increased by 8.1% on average. Peak power, 6.8%. And lactate profile power, 3.7%. So there was even an increase in FTP or lactate threshold at your aerobic level, which is quite amazing. But you can't attribute this just to plyo exercises because here they were combining the two. So it kind of leaves us empty-handed again, but maybe it shows us some sign. And really, I'd love to be leading you down this path where there is a study that just says plyo is the best and it will improve your 30-second and two-minute sprint, but it's not going to happen, unfortunately. 
there was the final study that I looked into, which was so comprehensive, it blew everything else out of the water. And the good thing about this study is it just looked at plyometrics and its effect on performance. The study is called The Effect of Plyometric Training on the Performance of Cyclists by Ludwig Gerstner. This was done way back in 2007, and the purpose of this study was to determine the effect of plyometric exercise training on the aerobic and anaerobic capacities of well-trained cyclists. So this is exactly where we want to be to find results. 20 male competitive cyclists tested vertical jump test, bench pull test, maximal aerobic capacity test, indoor 5-kilometer time trial test, anaerobic capacity test, the 30-second wind gate test, and an outdoor 4.4-kilometer time trial test. You can't say these peeps did not get tested. That is a hell of a lot of testing to sign up for. But the results, the results... The plyometric training program had no statistically significant effect on maximal aerobic capacity, anaerobic capacity, time trial performance, and vertical jump performance. Bam. That is a deflator. That is what you do not want to hear. There is a couple of interesting things that came of this, though, because during the Wingate test and the time to complete the lab time trial, they bordered on statistical significance. So that suggests that if you change some variables in the study, maybe you could get a significant result. Also, the experimental group significantly improved their upper body strength, so not really necessary for good cycling performances, but they did note a strong correlation between outdoor time trial performance and upper body strength. So, there's a couple of things you can take away from that, but you can't necessarily take away that plyo is going to be your saviour when you want to develop your anaerobic power. The plyometric training program did not significantly improve the performance of cyclists. Indications were that the experimental group improved their anaerobic power and upper body strength. So one previous study in the literature suggested that the effects of plyometric training may only be evident a few weeks after the completion of the program. It is therefore possible that cyclists in this study would have experienced the benefits of plyometric training only later, closer to the competition season, when their aim of their training is to improve power and speed. So that is scope for some hope, but not necessarily you can sign it off and say it is guaranteed to work. By the way, this particular study is excellent. It is such a good reference, not only for detailed explanations on each part of the physiology of cycling, but it also includes the programming used for the entire test period. In fact, it does a much better job at summarizing the requirements of cycling and plyometrics as a whole than I do, so definitely check it out if this stuff interests you. Though. You might not be convinced of the merits, and after these lackluster studies, it hasn't been explicitly stated in these or any other plyometric studies done in well-trained cyclists, but I am still a believer, and here's why. I like using the linear model in the gym, working towards higher and higher intensity. Not only I feel is it good for the body, but it's good for the mind. It's a refreshing break year after year of training. And also it can help you get through sometimes hard and arduous blocks of gym training just by variety alone. Also, much like getting in the gym for general strength workouts, there is a great benefit to the support systems of the body. The joints, the ligaments, the tendons and the muscles benefit from plyo workouts because they get stronger and more flexible over time. 
And as for performance gains on the bike, I can only anecdotally speak from experience when I'm talking here, but I must say I've never sprinted better than while working my way through plyo weeks. It's hard to describe that other than saying just when you have it, you have it. And a good sprint really is that. You have it or you don't. And plyo for me, I believe, played a really big part in that. So now, are you convinced enough to give it a shot? Because we've discussed the potential merits, and how about the warnings? Here is my biggest warning. Take it slow, oh, oh. Yep, take it slow. Kind of like the potential punishment that CrossFit dishes out. You have to build a base before you climb to the top of the plyometric pyramid. A solid base of four to eight weeks of strength training should be done before attempting any plyometrics. In the book, Jumping Into Plyometrics, Donald Chu recommends that you should be able to perform 50 reps of a squat at 60% of your body weight before doing plyometrics. I think that's a little too much, but you get the idea. It can really fuck you up. So watch yourself. Also, like any skill, learn the moves carefully. Understand your limitations in each movement and... Take it slow. Oh, you can get jammed knees, torn ACLs, muscle tears very, very easily take with this stuff. Anytime you're landing, it should be ideally soft, but the shock of the landing should be absorbed through several joints of the body. So with jumps and leg muscles that control the ankle, knee, and hips, all act as shock absorbers for the body to smooth out and soften the landing. So let's get into the nitty-gritty Basically, the way that I periodize any gym workouts, I move through from the prep phase into a strength phase, then a power phase, and then I hit the plyometrics. So the plyometrics really come into effect when you're just trying to sharpen everything up before season and overlapping into the season. I will also use them throughout the season as a type of maintenance. Of course, if it's coming up to a big race, I cut them out as I cut out all types of strength work before any major events. As long as you have the four to eight weeks of build-up beforehand, you're not going to go wrong. But make sure the timing is closer to when you're actually going to be using this. Otherwise, it's wasted effort to try and get your muscles reacting in a certain way that mimics cycling when you're not even going to be really racing or pushing hard on the bike. And I can't believe that I've got this far into the show without even talking about the types of exercises that plyometrics covers. I'm just going to rattle off a bunch of names that probably won't mean too much to you. So you'll have to check out semiprocycling.com forward slash plyo to get a list of all of these exercises. And I'm just going to list out the cycling specific ones. But basically, if you look at the overview of the exercises, there's three main types of motions that are used in plyometric exercises. There's jumps, which involve leaping, landing, and quickly rebounding to repeat a movement. There's hops. A hop is similar to a jump, except that it involves moving forward or laterally side to side and bounding and bounding is exaggerated running type of stride with the amount of time spent off the ground is maximized really bounding doesn't come into it when you're talking cycling specific plyo exercises but cycling specific lower body plyo exercises are things like the single leg box jumps lateral side jumps single leg hops single leg squat jumps split squat jumps single leg vertical jumps and single leg tuck jumps i think you can get the idea there that the specificity we're going for is single leg just like you're generating power on a bike with one leg at a time you're trying to mimic that by doing those actions with these exercises 
So there is a big breakdown there, and I hope you got something from it. And coming up to the start of the season really is the best time to start using this because you're going to shed some weight from the strength training, and you want to pick up with something that's a bit more explosive and powerful. My overall conclusion, though, is don't be afraid to be the weird one at the gym. You're already the weird one amongst your colleagues and your non-cycling friends, so just go for it. All right, the tech hacks and product section, and this week, a hack. Well, more like a heuristic to improve your pedaling efficiency and here it is pedal triangles you may be familiar with this one or you may not because there is a lot of information out there telling people to pedal in circles and circles yes squares no but you can't really produce the perfect 360 degree pedal stroke even when you are the most efficient cyclist i spoke last week about power cranks and they're trying to help you fix on the upstroke and so if you split your pedal down into three movements and think of it as a triangle with three points then maybe it's going to help you out and help your efficiency. If you mentally break down the pedal stroke into the downstroke, the backstroke, and the upstroke, then you're attempting to create power in three straight lines, and it produces the closest thing to a circular pedal stroke that a cyclist can create. It also allows the possibility of the greatest wattage for the amount of oxygen consumed, which is, of course, efficiency. But taking the time and working each of these parts out so you have them dialed in, I think will really, really help you when it comes to race day or just getting the most out of your legs. So the downstroke, most of the power is derived from the downstroke. The idea here is quite easy to understand because it's easy to generate that power while you're mashing down on the pedal. It's the backstroke, things start to become a little bit more complicated because a movement of crisis arises during each pedal stroke when the pedals are at 6 and 12 o'clock positions and neither leg is engaged in the downstroke. So there's not much power that's generated when you're at these positions. So you've got to create as much as possible to help you when you're in situations like climbing where it becomes really important to be smooth through these motions. The goal here is to provide just enough power to maintain momentum until the next downstroke begins. And to help you get there is the final area, and it's the upstroke. This is where power cranks come in, and it's really where your hip flexion and lifting the knee and your knee flexion lifting of the foot come into action. And since the hip flexors are active only in this range of the pedal stroke, they should be the primary muscle that you're contracting during this phase. The hamstrings are very active during the backstroke and somewhat active during the downstroke as well. So efficient riders relax them as much as possible during the upstroke to save them. But you're attempting to pull the pedal through this phase and it places much of the concentration on the knee flexion and prevents hamstring relaxation. So the hip flexors, once trained, are extremely fatigue resistant. Hopefully you'll be able to build up the hip flexors with this heuristic, knowing how important the upstroke actually is into getting you set up for the downstroke, which is where it all happens. Now, that quote from the top of the show, it's Nino Scherter, current world mountain bike cross-country Olympic champion. He will also join Orica Greenedge for a limited number of road races during this season. Earmarked are the Tour de Romandie and the Tour de Suisse. He's only 27 years old, and it seems like he has conquered everything there is to conquer in mountain bike. 
riding mountain bike racing except probably an Olympic gold medal. But the Orica Green Edge connection comes about mainly due to their shared bike company, Scott. But he has stated that he isn't going to be giving up mountain biking anytime soon. But you never know. So good luck in those races. I'll be really interested to see how you make the transition because I know, Nino, you are an absolute gun on the mountain bike. Before I go this week, I want to discuss something and invite you to the next evolution of semi-pro cycling. It's called wheelhouse.cc. Wheelhouse has come about because when it comes to the building blocks of success, what I found over my time cycling, my time racing and hosting this podcast is that the three main elements that have had the greatest impact on my cycling are knowledge and information, which does include coaching and direction, community, which includes clubs, family and other cyclists and cycling friends and commitment which includes showing up to every single training session ready to ride wheelhouse combines all of these and all the little details that get glossed over too often so in some ways you can think of wheelhouse as premium content because it allows me to hone down on specific information that can make it actionable and step by step but really it's more about you and your journey as a cyclist so here are the great features that i've come up with for wheelhouse there are weekly question and answer sessions where we get on the phone and we discuss any problems that you've had during the week a monthly masterclass with top cycling experts we break down every single element of training and cycling so you can understand it for your own riding and you learn much more. A private membership website that contains a training resource section which would be built out over time to include trainer road workouts and an extensive workout list for on the bike and off the bike training and also a private Facebook group where we can interact together and keep each other accountable and learning from each other throughout the week. So who is it for? Really, when I think about Wheelhouse, I think about any cyclist that has a lot of questions and needs advice. But if you're looking to build a sense of community around your cycling, especially if you aren't on a team, but even if you are on a team and you want to get the most out of it, because it's not just for racers and super fit, though. It's really for anyone that thinks they may be past their prime or is in their prime, but you still have a goal of being the best that you can be. Wheelhouse can definitely help you here. Another way Wheelhouse can help is if you're afraid to get a coach because your life really is complicated and unpredictable, then I know that it's hard to stick to a training plan. But if I and the community can give you informed and a general sense of direction, and with the support of a community and me, we can get you happening. Nothing is out of bounds when it comes to this it's expert advice on any cycling issues so whether you're riding to lose weight gain fitness for the thrill of winning we can talk about strength training mobility nutrition squeezing out all the relevant information from your power meter being in top shape when you want advice on races and sportifs fueling strategies whatever it is whatever it's going to take to help you reach your goals because wheelhouse is all about you it's about your journey as a cyclist to motivate and inspire you to take the necessary steps to reach the success that you only dream about and achieving the feeling of contentment that you've done everything that you can wheelhouse is $47 per month it's $97 if you pay quarterly which works out to $32.33 per month and as a special 
launch bonus for the first 10 people that register for Wheelhouse. You'll get a free 30-minute one-on-one coaching call with me, which I value at 127 bucks based off my coaching rates. So there you have it. This is the next evolution, and I really, really look forward to working with everybody that signs up for Wheelhouse because it'll allow me to get into the nitty-gritty of your cycling and help you be the best that you can be. But for me this week, that's it. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast, and remember to head over to wheelhouse.cc to check it out in more detail. But till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 